black people are more likely to be a victim of crime and also be the perpetrator of crime, particularly knife crime. We need to have a look at that. As a black teenager, you're 13 times more likely to be murdered than your white counterpart. That's a real, real um, statistic that we should face. Coming up on British thought leader Sean Bailey, member of the London Assembly and the House of Lords. Sean talks about his support for stop and search as well as tougher policing. Since Sadiq Khan has been mayor, we've had two record years for teenage homicide. Two record years in a row. And I believe it's because of his stance on, on stop and search and generally on policing. He says a liberal approach to tackling the drugs problem won't work. There's no such thing as woke coke. You know, people talking about, you know, paying the growers. What about all of the criminal activity in between? And that will never go away. And the idea that you legalise and that your, your, your criminal gangs, you know, down tools and become respectable people overnight is utter nonsense. I'm Lee Hall. This is British Thought Leaders. Lord Bailey of Paddington, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. You're chair of the London Assembly Housing Committee. Yeah. Affordable housing in London is, is a bit of an issue at the moment. A lot of people can't get on the housing ladder. Some people are priced out of the city altogether. Why is providing affording house, affordable housing such a problem and what can be done about it? So there's three things to say about that question initially. Firstly, it's not a new problem in London. There was a time when London's population was decreasing, um, but we're long past that point now. So maybe um, mid to late 70s, we weren't decreasing, but through the 80s, our population has absolutely exploded. And that's both from immigration and also people moving internally in the country. So there's a big need. Um, you, you, we have far more single households than we've ever had before. So usually people have stuck together, families have grown, and you know you provide less housing. Bigger houses, but less of them. So that, that single house thing has really um, pushed the numbers. And of course, it's just the sheer value of land in London. Land in London is some of the most expensive in the world. London is one of the biggest sort of metropolitan modern cities in the world, which presents us with a problem. And between demand and cost, the supply has been very restrictive. Um, some people would point to planning. Planning has been an issue, but mostly developers would point to cost. Do you feel that things are going to go in the positive direction with this, or do you think we're still facing quite a lot of insurmountable problems? There's two or three things. Firstly, the mayor now, um, the modern mayor, it's a 21-year-old situation, has the, the task of delivering housing in London. Um, the current mayor isn't doing very well. He had an affordable housing programme of 116,000 homes that ended in 2024. He was given... £4.82 billion to do that. He just about scraped through. And how he did that was to buy existing homes, um, to build some new homes. He really just about scraped through. But of course, did he really add to the net number of homes in London? That's the big debate we're having now. But he has a new affordable housing programme, which is from 23 to 26, and he's built not one single home and he's already halfway through. His numbers have been lowered significantly. The government are only asking for between 23,000 and 27,000 and even that was lowered from 35,000. But at this point he's built absolutely zero, which is a real worry. And it's a demonstration of a number of things. It is challenging financially to build homes now, but because he took so long to start, it meant that he got caught up in the, in the cycle of, of, of really challenging um, 
circumstance to deliver homes. The hope is, and, and I really want to stress this point, this is beyond politics here, the hope is he actually can get it done. And as a chair of, of, of housing committee in, in um, City Hall, I think it's my goal to help. He's, he's my political opponent in one sense, but I think it's long beyond that. We need to help the mayor deliver these homes because Londoners really, really need them. Uh, London's struggling in many ways. One of the big ones now is knife crime. Even what do you think can be done to try and tackle this? The history of London's struggling with knife crime is two, there's two important factors to take into account. Firstly, as big cities go, and London is very big, our unofficial population is 10 million. It's a very, very big city. It's still one of the safest places to be in, in the world from that point of view. Um, but if you live in particular communities, it's very, very dangerous. So that needs to be taken into account. And the other thing is, when Sadiq Khan ran for mayor the first time, he made a very big play about reducing stop and search. And he talked about reducing stop and search. On the street, that became, the words were, we're going to stop stop and search. So what happened was you, your average gangster armed themselves because they didn't feel like they were going to get stopped. And then young people became frayed and armed themselves into in response to that. And then the number of weapons on the streets of London skyrocketed, as well as the deaths. Since Sadiq Khan has been mayor, we've had two record years for teen teenage homicide, two record years in a row. And I believe it's because of his stance on, on stop and search and generally on policing. Um, some would argue that that's improving now, but of course lockdown did an awful lot to, to bring those figures down. The statistics show that um, black people are more likely to be the perpetrators in knife crime and also more likely to be the victims. Do you think as a society we're reluctant to kind of face this issue head on and how do you think we can tackle it? The short answer to your question is yes. We are reluctant to attack head on the, the idea and um, the fact that black people are more likely to be a victim of crime and also be the perpetrator of crime, particularly knife crime. We need to have a look at that. As a black teenager, you're 13 times more likely to be murdered than your white counterpart. That's a real, real um, statistic that we should face. Um, speaking to the new Metropolitan Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, he is very keen to face that. And I'm, I'm quite impressed with his, with his, his, his desire to, to grasp a, quite a, a fawny issue. I think it's made fawny because whenever the police address anything like they're accused of racism, people talk about disproportionality. But I always point to the fact the real disproportionality is the amount of young black teenagers who are stabbed to death. That should be our focus. So I think as a, as a, as a community in London now, because of the commissioner, we are approaching the point where we will have a realistic conversation. There's members of the community as well who see this as an emergency and want to have that conversation. I think there's a changing dynamic and we might actually get there. I think there's a number of things we could do. If, if I was to rank the top sort of three or four things we could do, firstly would be support the police to do their job. They're not social workers. They're here to enforce the law. Support them to do that. We have to have a realistic talk about the amount of stop and search because we always say, it's always said rather, oh, stop and search doesn't um, lead to many arrests. But what it does lead to is the fact that people think, well, I might get caught with this weapon, I better not carry it. And that's very, very important because the number of weapons on the street equals the number of terror on the street. So that's very, very important. The other piece as well is about what are we doing for our youngsters in general, but black youngsters in particular, also their family. Their family needs to be part of this conversation. 
parents need to be part of this conversation. We need to say to black Londoners, you know, you're as valued and, as, and, and equal as anybody else. Here's the opportunities this country, this city has to offer. You know, get involved. We can't make people successful. We mustn't give people any more than we'll give anybody else, but we can signpost black teenagers because there is a great thing around, for instance, unemployment. Um, black te teenagers' rate of unemployment is significantly higher. Um, sorry, when I say black teenagers, I mean younger black people. It's significantly higher than their white counterparts. That has an impact on, on our communities because we have very much lower income, and that needs to be addressed. And I think the, the fourth thing I'd say is we need to make sure that London feels safe. Is it clean? Is there appropriate lighting? How welcome we are to tourists? How many bobbies do you see on the beat? What are we doing about antisocial behaviour? All these low-level, um, you know, sometimes when you look at knife crime, may feel slightly unimportant. They're actually very important to the general level of safety in London because how people feel is how they behave. London statistically is safe. People don't feel safe, so they behave like they're unsafe. And in one sense, that means they carry weapons. You've done a lot of work with young people from disadvantaged backgrounds in the capital. What are some of the, the big problems they face? So I came to politics through youth, through, through, through youth work. I've been a youth worker now for over 30 years. When I originally started, it was about employment. It was about making sure people succeeded in school. It's about making sure people from mainly the black and Moroccan community felt like they were British. Um, I'd say that situation hasn't changed. It is still about all of those things as well. I think the other thing I'd add, though, the new piece is to make sure we don't continually talk to our children about their rights. They also have responsibilities as well. And it's been my experience that people are at their best when they are advocating for others. So if we can say to our young people, the world doesn't owe you a living, but we do owe you a chance, then they will do, I, I believe they'll rise to, to that challenge. And the other piece as well is to not continue to talk to our young people about being victims. Because if you talk to them about being a victim of crime, being a victim of systemic racism, there's two ways they can go. They can become, you know, inspired to fight the system and succeed, or they can give in and become another statistic. And there are a lot of young people who have historic trauma. And in order to help them recover from that trauma, it, you, you do need to talk, talk them into realising their own strength. And I think sometimes in our desperation to help, we don't always point out to them they do have a future and we'll help them build that. The drugs is also a big problem, not just in London, of course, but uh, across the country. I mean, when people talk about tackling drugs, they talk about you know, street crime, gangs, uh, working class addiction. But there's also this strata of society, people with good jobs who are earning a lot of money, who are buying drugs and supporting this industry. Do you think there's like a, a two-tier approach almost? There's 100% a two-tier approach to drugs. So for instance, a lot of the people pushing now to legalise marijuana are your lovely, respectable, middle-class people who've picked up marijuana in the last five to ten years and don't like the idea they're doing something illegal. So now they're pushing to make it legal. A lot of your people who, who take cocaine are your very well-heeled city types, suburban types who have the money. They don't commit crime. They have decent jobs. They have families. They have homes that they own. But what they forget, both of those groups of people forget, is there's a huge amount of crime, an absolute avalanche of crime connected to the drug um, buying environment. So you may not be a criminal, you, you may have a very respectable job, but the cocaine you bought, how many, how many people are injured or died to deliver that to your nose? 
quite a few. You talk about weed and it's, it's harmless and all of that. How many young people are suffering from psychosis because of, of weed? How many young people have been involved in delivering that weed, have been bullied, have been trafficked, have been used for county lines so that you can have some weed on a Friday night? There's definitely a two-tier thing, a, a two-tier approach. And I want to make this point. There's no such thing as woke coke. You know, people talking about, you know, paying the growers. What about all of the criminal activity in between? And that will never go away. And the idea that you legalise and that your, your, your criminal gangs, you know, down tools and become respectable people overnight is utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. They will just find other ways to work in an even bigger market now because it's legal. The single most harmful drug in the world, or certainly in Britain, is alcohol. There's many, many more alcoholics than there is drug, drug users. But what's the difference between class A drugs or class B drugs and alcohol? Availability, legalization. Now people say, oh well, no, alcohol's legal, but that's historic, it's too late for that. Yeah. If you now legalize you know, marijuana, c cocaine, you will destroy communities, particularly poor communities. How do you think we can address this two-tier problem? <laughs> I remember when I ran for mayor, I suggested that we should drug test, you know, bankers, um, insurance people. You know, if you drive a forklift truck, we'll give you a drug test to make, make sure you don't endanger anyone. If you're in charge of my pension, you're just as much risk to me as you are someone in a forklift truck. And I remember when I, when I suggested this, because it's, it's routinely done in America and other places around the world, there was an absolute outrage oh, uh, and what was interesting is the outrage w was for want of a better, better term a very middle-class outrage it was in certain newspapers in certain websites you know and, and I wanted to say to those people I'm glad you enjoy your drugs and I'm sure you don't consider yourself a menace to society but you're you're involved in the single biggest activity that 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 drives criminal activity in London for, for sure which is to my mind which is, is drugs in general and I, when I started saying it to people, they didn't like that idea. They didn't want to be confronted with it. But it's reality of that. And in order to make it two-tier, I think we, we need to appeal to people's um, sort of better judgment. You know, I know you enjoy cocaine, but, but do you enjoy putting people at risk? Because that's what you do every time you take cocaine. Bear that in mind before you buy some more. We've recently seen massive protests in London. And some people have been surprised that there's those among us who hold values that seem kind of anti-British or to hold Britain in contempt. In, do you see this as a failure of multiculturalism? i tell you what I see. If our young people are being raised up by social media and the internet, and I challenge anybody who doesn't believe what I'm about to say, if you go onto TikTok, if you go onto YouTube, if you go onto any of the social platforms, you don't have to search almost any before you find some very, very vehement anti-British sentiment. Anything from you know, lots of jokes about how stupid and fat British people are, uh, about to how wicked colonialism was. And I spoke to a young group of, a group of young people recently and they were going about colonialism. And I said to them, yes, it had many horrors, but you show me any nation in this world that has a clean historical slate. And they were stunned because they'd only been ever been, been sort of bombarded with what's wrong with Britain. And I said, you see the conversations we have about racism and what we have about LGBT rights, etc." And I said, do you believe many other countries in the world are having these conversations? So yes, we have a checkered past like every other nation of note, 
but also we are quite a learned nation. We're constantly talking about these things, constantly trying to improve. But that's a version of Britain they, they were never given. They, were, they weren't told that one of the biggest um, humanitarian um, presence on the planet is our armed forces. They do so much humanitarian work, but they're not given that version of the country. And I think some of it is nefarious from outside forces, teaching the young people of Britain to hate Britain. Other parts of it are activists in the country who are so focused on their one issue, they're trying to tear down all that is Britain to elevate their issue. And I wish people would step back and, and ask themselves, what are they doing to our young people? Because if we're divided against ourselves, we'll never succeed as a nation. And any, any hopes and dreams you have, no matter what your sort of political bents are, will be destroyed as the nation is destroyed. And, and that, that conversation isn't had enough. We're not talking about ourselves as a whole. Mm. And of course, when we doubt ourselves, hate ourselves, it means that anybody can sell us a, a, a new belief and we'll, and we'll, we'll grasp onto it because we don't believe in who and what we are. Do you think the social media companies are playing quite a negative role in all of this? As you mentioned, TikTok's flooded with all sorts of things. And these are companies that are kind of based outside the UK, um, but are having a massive influence on our young people. I don't want to focus on any particular social media company because I think they all have massive problems. But I will say one thing about TikTok. TikTok in China looks significantly different to what it does in the Western world. In China, it's... You would let your child look at it. It's you know, it has homework stuff and all the rest of that. It's, it's quite. I don't want to use the word wholesome, but it is a significantly um, better than what our children are exposed to the Western world. And the reason I make that point because it shows you that it could be cleaned up. It's about will. It's about will. Yes, we have lots of talk in the West about censors, you know, censorship. But our children are being exposed to the worst aspects of human existence routinely and nobody's intervening. And I do think the social media companies, they have a responsibility. And then when you read things in a paper that, you know, some of the senior executives of said companies won't let their own children on there, it makes you wonder, well, why, why would you expose my children but not your own? And I, and I think we are approaching a point where Western governments may start to change their interaction with these media companies because these media companies have great leverage. They are massive, massive financial institutions. They provide great levels of employment, high-paying employment, but there's a point where their social damage outperforms their, their economic benefit, and I think we're approaching that point. You grew up in a council house in one of the poorer parts of London. Yes. Um, what was it that, when you were younger, were you kind of more towards the left? And, and what was it about liberalism that kind of pushed you towards a more traditional outlook? I think what, what moved me away from liberalism is that liberalism is a, is a, is a, is a, it's a mobile target. It, it, it's constantly moving with the times. And I think if you do that too much, you then ignore the bits of your history that have worked. For me, the major one was family. I remember when Black Lives um, Black Lives Matter came about, everybody jumped on the bandwagon and I just went and read their website and it said one of their goals was to destroy the nuclear family. I was horrified because if you look into the black community, if I had a magic wand to fix anything, I would fix family structure. That nuclear family is what the black community lacks most and there's financial safety in there, there's educational performance in there, there's physical and mental health in there. So the idea that a liberal organisation would destroy that to me just compounded for me the idea that I, that I you know, I, 
liberalism, I, I don't think is as great as we so it sounds. In the West, we all like the idea of being able to do what we want, when we want and how we want, and that's fine to a point, because that, that, when does that point damage the group? And also, the, the, when you have a history, when you, ha when you have traditions, when you raise your children in those traditions, they learn quicker, they're safer, and they're time-tested. So, for instance, we're raising our children now with massive exposure to adult content all the time with no history of that. I guarantee you that's going to work out very poorly. And if anybody doubts me, just look at the mental health of our children. It is abysmal. Many years ago, probably about 10 or 15 years ago now, we saw this coming because many trials were done to measure the happiness of our children. And this is British children I'm referring to. And there's two very different um, ideologies used, you know, and British children came bottom of both of those two different studies. And I think it's because we are liberal. We act for adults not understanding what's good for children and, and maybe not caring what's good for children. We hold this liberal, no censorship, you know, no control, do as you want, you know, sleep with who you like, take as much drugs as, who, with, as you like, not realising that it does have an impact beyond yourself, your household and, you know, your street. You've um, talked about the pressures on you as a youngster to get involved in crime that you resisted. I mean, you've gone from the housing estate to being Lord Bailey of Paddington, so you, you must have made some right decisions along the way. I mean, what were the things in life that you know, allowed you to make the right choices and kept you on the right path? That's easy to answer, people. I have been blessed in my life to have bumped into deliberately sought out and just met some really good people so from like, you know, close friends. I have a good friend, Scott, my best friend, and I have a friend in, in university, Alex, um, just just kept me standing up, then wider friendships. I, well, I, I did youth work and I had a mentor called Baron Hume and he helped me really figure out what I believe. I mean, he was a committed socialist and, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a conservative and, and the quality of the man, he didn't try to convert me. He just asked me the questions to help me come to my own conclusions. I, I had, I had a, um, Colonel Conley in, in the Army Cadets. Army Cadets has been a big feature of my life. He just helped me figure out what kind of man I wanted to be. I had my gymnastics coaches who taught me to care because one of the things when you come from the street, you, you, you develop a very hard shell because to use a street term, if you're soft, you're lost. Yeah. So, but in that environment of gymnastics, being in a team that was largely girls, my two coaches made me focus on, you know, advocating and defending other people, which was very, very, very good for me. I mean, to name drop, I met David Cameron when I, I was running a youth project and he, he had heard about the work I was doing and wanted to see it. And I met David Cameron and, and hence how I got involved in politics. So along the way, I've been very fortunate to meet very good people to help me figure out who I wanted to be and where to go. But the basis for all that is two people, really. One is my family, my aunties, my uncles, and my mum. My mum was, um, she's been the foundation, she's been my rock. And latterly to that would be my wife. My wife has helped me pursue ambitions. You know, I, I would say to someone, one of the greatest protective factors against poverty against being drawn into a life of crime is ambition. And I mean in its broadest sense. And then once you have that idea that you want to do or be something else, I would then say entrepreneur, to be an entrepreneur in its broadest sense. And I don't mean someone who, who builds and invests in business. That's a very particular, and very special thing. I mean a different specialism where in any situation you're in, 
you try to figure out how can I make this better for me and them? How can we get the most out of what the meager resources we have? That kind of entre entrepreneurism, uh, particularly in a poor community, is rife and with a little bit of focus can be life-changing. Can you talk to us a bit about the importance of male role models, particularly for younger men? People won't like me saying this, but one of the features of growing up as a black boy in London in nice, formal, caring environments is often the lack of a, a, role, a, a male role model. Um, over 70% of, of black children grow up in a single parent family. That has a financial impact. It also has a leadership impact as well. I remember when I, I became a Christian and I, I joined my church, the proliferation of male, it was, it was stark. All of a sudden there was male role models everywhere. And it, it then pointed out to me that two people had been very important to me. I never grew up with my dad, but the idea of my dad, and when I became older, I then met my dad and, and was involved with him, was very important to me. But what made me know that having an older man to check your behavior, um, explain things to you, defend you, um, was my uncle. So I have an uncle Dennis, and I have an uncle Trevor, and they were instrumental in controlling some of the sort of testosterone-driven anger that young men have, the, the ability to be radicalized. It is easy to, and when I say radicalized, people will immediately think of politics, but I'm talking about gang activity. Right. How do you get a young boy from, you know, playing with his little toy cars into dealing drugs and stabbing people, that's a, that's, a, that's a journey of radicalization. And without a man that you trust, respect, and think is tough mentally and physically to interfere in that process, it's much more likely to happen. And that's why a male role model is important. And then once you sort of, you know, you, you, you move beyond all that, you're in a sort of professional world, and, and in my case, political world, I had people like Lord Nash. John Nash, to me, was a father figure. He, um, it, it, it was very, I've been in very tough situations and think to myself, I wonder what John thinks. Or I know I can go to John and get advice. I've had have mentors like Stuart Pollock, Lord Pollock, very, very, very nice man, very willing to give ad, ad, advice. And also peers, as, as you get older, you start to be around like-minded people that is vital to you. And having peers who can check your thinking but have your same sensibility is, is important because I often say to young people, if you tell your friends your dreams and they laugh, they're not your friends. If you tell your friends your dreams and they try to figure out a way to help, that's a true friend. Mm -hmm. And that peer stuff is, is been, um, it's, it's been powerful for me. That's been very helpful. You mentioned the army cadets. Could you talk to us a bit about what role that played in your life? Army cadets for me came along when I was 12 and a half. It was vital because it was the only gang that was deep enough in history, deep enough in, in to my 12-year-old self that looked like tough men to counter what was going on in the street. Because what was going on in the street was very attractive. Some of the best-looking, best-dressed, well-moneyed people I knew were getting involved in gang activity, and they were, they were offering you a very easy in. But I went to Army Cadets, and they were equally strong, equally committed people, but in a different direction. And I, I found that attractive. And looking back, there was a definite competition in my mind. I could have gone one way or, or the other. And I remember 
um, there was a guy called Roy, Roy, Roy Lindsay. He was um, in Tempara, you know, and he, he, he was a young man and I was a boy, but we fought. He was marvellous, you know, he just, you know, you saw good in his uniform. He, had a, he always had a nice word to say, pat you on the head. Now. But he, he was, he, like, he did something to me, just his existence. And then I had people I grew up with who, they'll laugh now because they're my friends, but people like George Idiels and Darren Fryer, and they were my friends and they, they were good men and, and tough men. But for them, being tough was providing for your family, mm. not fighting on the street, that kind of thing. And that environment of cadets was important because army cadets was doing personal development before it became a term. The, the, the whole armed forces, that's what they do. They get individuals and they develop you because that's what the situation needs. Also, there's a job for everyone. It doesn't matter how clever you are, how tall, short, fat, thin, black, white, there's a place for you in the team and that means you have personal value. And they develop the, the, the idea of self. So self-belief, self-control and self-worth. And they're what I call transferable attitudes. You, you bring that into your life. And all of this is happening and you're 12, 13, 14, 15, you're unaware. You're having a great time with your friends. You're getting muddy, you're running around. You know, you've got somewhere to be on the weekend. You've got somewhere to be two days a week, two evenings a week. But all of these things are going on in your, in your emotional self and they're very, very powerful because it means as you go ahead, those friends that you probably shouldn't have start to fall away because you're spending more time with friends you should have. And, and, and that's powerful. What I would hope is, I go back to my conversation about how we talk about the nation. Many more young people would look at a career in the forces if we talked about Britain in a more positive way. It's a very British thing to be in the British Armed Forces, clearly. And I think the Armed Forces has plenty to offer. And it's not just people shouting at you and you know, making you march up and down. You become expert in some of the most sophisticated instruments the world has to offer. You get to travel the world. You, you are trained with the highest, the most highly trained people on the planet. And those kind of things have a real knock-on effect on your own ability. And you only have to look at what people do once they leave the forces, the companies they go on to set up, the social work they do, the, the charitable work. You're dealing with some very, very committed, sharp, clever individuals. And I think the more young people exposed to that, the better. Sean Bailey, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Pleasure.